Welcome back to the podcast Murmurs, Stories from Our Journey in Medicine. This podcast series is meant to act as a reflective experience for the way health providers and those in training think about their patients in medicine. Not so much about how they make diagnoses, but about how they relate to their patients, continue to think about them long after a visit, and what makes doctors and nurses tick. Each episode, we will interview someone from UMass Medical School who has written a creative piece and listen to the story behind it. The hope is that this podcast will inspire others to be more reflective practitioners as well. So welcome back to another episode of Murmurs. This is Chue. And I'm Layo. And we're joined today by Dr. Henry Del Rosario. He is a family physician and assistant professor at UMass Chan. He's an avid writer and artist, and much of his work centers around the relationships between identity, art, healing, meditation, and prayer. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Del Rosario. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for choosing me. Um, Could you tell us uh, about how you got into writing and art? I guess I was always into art for my whole life, you know, and I remember in high school, I definitely made it a conscious effort to, you know, choose art classes. So it's always been kind of a thing. Actually, you know, I thought about going into some kind of illustrative or art career or at least for college. The thing is, though, part of me also was very into science. And so it was really hard to kind of um, meld those together. So what ended up happening was that I didn't choose to go to art school. I chose to uh, uh, major in molecular and cellular biology and uh, double major in English. And you wonder why English, but it kind of felt the same to me, honestly, art or writing. It just was like a creative process and telling a story. So really it was in my mind, even though I look back, I'm like, that is kind of different. It was really the same thing. And so it just always found some form in my season of life, whether that's in high school or college or med school or beyond. There's always some form of art that had to land in my life. Very cool. When the COVID pandemic first began, you and Dr. Jian set out to photograph frontline workers in your Workers of Worcester project, which can be found at workersofworcester.org. Could you tell us more about the roots of this project? Yeah. We were in the midst of the pandemic. I think that was around March when it really hit. And I am a family doctor, so I do outpatient clinic, acute and preventative care, but also I'm a part-time hospitalist and laborist. So there were so many patients in the hospital. You know, the the hospitalists that were there are already working full-time, so they needed people who could flex You know, they specifically asked me, hey, Henry, could you pause clinic and OB for a while and do more hospital work? And of course, you know, this is what you were made for, right? If you're a doctor, like this is it to do your thing. And as much as I love OB and clinic, um, you know, this wasn't forever. This was going to be kind of helping in an extraordinary moment. So I started doing a lot of hospice work. And, uh, you know, just seeing everything is just so chaotic. You know, how many floors did we change to COVID floors, transforming like surgical floors to just COVID, et cetera, you know, canceling all non-urgent things. Our hospital was still, you know, busting from the seams, right? And so there was a lot of stress and things were new, obviously, and a lot of cultural and protocol changes. 
So through it all though, I kind of knew like, whoa, this is definitely historic, but it's also just like, you know, there's definitely something happening within, you know, individually with all of us. And so, you know, that's just like the kind of thing you want to do and just reflect on. And it was really cool. And I'm really, you know, lucky that I took a moment to breathe. And uh, when I was walking down the hall, just kind of reflecting, I saw Anhua. So Anhua, Dr. Jiang, she was one of the senior residents. And uh, I knew that she was really into art and photography. And I, I was also into art and photography. And I didn't even know what, it, what I wanted to do, but I knew like, oh, we got to do something artistic during this time, right? Because this is like prime material for, you know, sharing and hearing and listening to other people. And um, yeah, I had no plan, just a vague kind of aspiration. But, and, I, and I knew Anhua was like kind of there and interested in those kind of things. So I just asked her, hey, do you want to do some art project with me, you know, during this pandemic? And she's like, yes, <laughs> that was my pitch. I, had, I didn't say like, oh, let's make a website or let's go interview people and take photos. It was literally just a vague aspiration. Like, let's partner in this and figure it out. And uh, I wish she was here, but she would say like, you know, she, she was already prepared in her mind and in her heart and in her emotions to do something. It was just the opportunity needed to come to say yes. You know, I could, you know, you can kind of sense that in people. So I'm glad I asked her, you know, you need to partner with someone and get inspiration. So she was the perfect person. That's awesome. And I guess along that same line, like, it seems like in some ways, like both of you just needed that kind of creative release to kind of understand or like process like what all the hectic things that were going on at that time like how has like photography and like interviewing those frontline workers helped in your own self-reflection well I think you're right I don't even know how to explain it right I think if you are an artist or have artistic aspirations you kind of have this thing where it will constantly kind of nag at you or come at you and need things from you once in a while. And, and it's interesting us being in the medical field, being physicians, because you have a lot of demands of your time. But every once in a while when the stars aligned and you kind of got the time and you're committed and you got the emotional kind of readiness for it, the mental readiness, the physical readiness, it can bubble through and then it becomes something. And, and your artistic aspiration kind of just like grabs you and be like, do this now, you know? So that's kind of what happened. It was the right timing, everything aligned. And, um, you know, you just have to kind of tend it and grow it, right? You gotta, you're like, you see that little plant, you're like, okay, it's there. Like, it, it's already there. You just need to like make it grow tall and big and give it all of it that it needs. So it was hard. I'll tell you, it's really hard. I mean, we were really like, we were overworked, right? Everyone in the hospital is overworked. So we had to have a plan. <laughs> we, had, and we had to make something practical. So it was very practical because taking a photo takes a few seconds and then editing it, you know, takes a little bit of time, but you know, we both, I knew we were capable and uh, it was kind of, kind of self-limited, right? That's actually really cool because then the next question would be how you find the time to engage in medical humanities, writing, photography, all the other things that you do. As you were talking yeah. earlier, you mentioned you were taking these pictures and you realized this is a historic moment. 
And I was reflecting on my own journey and saying, wait, I should have been journaling this entire time. You know, so it's really cool that you've taken this initiative. So I do wonder how you find the time and do all the things that you yeah. do. Yeah. You know, I think medicine gives you an advantage in artistic aspirations because you are very, very well versed in studying and learning an incredible amount in a short amount of time. So you can use that focus and you know ability to art itself. And then then we grow your physical ability when you go to residency, 80 hours a week, you know? I mean, in essence, do you know like what was it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I think that's what it's called. Let me just, yeah, it is. It is so the triangle, right? Yeah. So you don't you can't really do this unless you get your needs met, right? You you need to like be able to you need sleep, you need to eat. You know, I had one baby at the time. So there was a lot of responsibilities first that you need to achieve. And and um yeah, you can't force it. So that's okay. It's okay if your artistic ambitions are kind of on pause for a while because you you know you're not in that quite season yet. So really the question this question should be asked of Anhua because she she was working way more than me. Um, so I think I think we had to have a good plan to be like, okay, who who is what we made a list of all the people we wanted to interview. We triaged it, right? Prioritized it, and then we set, okay, you're free this time, I'm free this time, let's meet this time and do it. At this time, we wanted you to read um, your work. All right, I have it open here. So yeah, Saving Face, Anxiety and Asian Americans. Wasn't he Filipino? Jisoo asked as we walked in. He might be, Southeast Asian at least, I think. We'll go and ask him if things go well, I replied. For the past few weeks, Jisoo and I have been looking for a new car. After visiting a few dealerships and obtaining quotes, we went back to the dealership that had a sales rep guy we really liked. He promised he would match any price we found. When we entered from the distance, it was our sales rep guy waiting for us at the door. He gave a cordial greeting and sat us down to begin business. Armed with internet prices, emails, and prior research, we bargained through a few quick bouts with him and his manager. As we negotiated, I channeled memories of my dad haggling his way through his first few years in Chicago, loud and heavy-handed, brandishing a frankness only a fresh-off-the-boat immigrant could have. Like an attending doctor taking charge, the manager started overtaking the sales rep behind the conversation. The boss would lurch his bony face forward, firm his voice, iterate a sharper argument as we discussed specifics. After more rounds of back and forth, they took a minute to deliberate apart from us. The sales rep guy came back ready to shake my hand. It's done. His face cheese and accomplishment. As I shook his hand, I noticed a stubby finger, a healed scar, and his skin was just as brown as mine. They agreed to come down to our price. We sat back down, and as he moved to the other side, I heard something drop on the floor, a plastic thud and the rattle of pills inside. I peeked down reflexively, and before he hid it back in his pocket, I recognized the brand name, Advan. He shuffled back to his seat. We chatted freely now that the pressure was off. Since we had to disclose our incomes and occupation, he asked us about what it was like being doctors. I shared how I wish I had Filipino patients, but found a lot of enjoyment finding common ground with Asian patients that I do see. He 
explained that there was a decent community of Filipinos in the state. There's also a big population of Hmong nearby and even larger population of Laotians. And what ethnic background do you come from? Jisoo asked. Cambodian. We immigrated here when I was five as refugees, lived here ever since. We talked about sticky rice, Ali Wong, and the difference between fancy and jungle Asians. Uh, and my wife is Korean, in parentheses, and where the refugee communities started and how they migrated throughout New England. Our turn was done with him, so we moved on to the finance guy in a separate room. He was an older man who sat up straight. Uh, he would speak loud and clear, and as his arms waved during talking, you would see the glisten of his large golden watch. After more negotiations of the lesson degree between the curt flipping of pages, he interjected, where is Paul? He should be here. He made a quick scan into the dealer room, a greasy glance, then returned back to the contracts. He's probably scared of you, you guys being doctors and all. According to Statistical Atlas in Providence, Rhode Island, of people who have Asian ancestry, 39.7% were Cambodian, 18.8% were Chinese, 9.2% were Laotian, 3% were Filipino, and 2% were Hmong. A study from the APA from 2008 measured anxiety uh, in a group of college students. The researchers found significant differences showing Asian Americans reporting greater total social anxiety and distress in new situations did, than did European Americans. The researchers suggest that culture may correlate to anxiety differences. An awareness of one's inaccuracies and perceiving emotions of others may exacerbate fears of social situations, especially when attunement to others and the avoidance of loss of face are valued. Moreover, an umbrella analysis from 2017 of several systematic reviews about refugee mental health showed that anxiety was at least as frequent as post-traumatic stress disorder, accounting for up to 40% of asylum seekers and refugees. As a family physician, I am privy to all kinds of experiences my patients live through day by day. Last week, I had a prolonged discussion with a patient about starting benzodiazepines, like Ativan, or not. The patient had an unexpected death in the family, a stressful home life, and a job as a PCA, which exacerbates her social anxiety. I ended up giving her benzodiazepines. Filipinos have a cultural attitude called hiya, which roughly translates to embarrassment, shame, or saving face. It's a painful emotion, realizing one has not met up to society's standards. Mapahia is intentionally acting towards others that avoids causing another person to feel embarrassed. Others have similar ideas, such as saving face. Oh, oh this, is a, this is in Chinese. I don't know how to pronounce it. I should have looked that up. Um, I guess it's mianzi in China to lose face. Okay, thank you. That was really helpful. I, that's awesome. That's awesome that you know. Um, and then I guess this, I wrote, I found this in Japanese, so or to lose face, so mensu in Japan. These values often be problematic to the American values of individualism and nonconformism. This often comes up when I watch movies when I was young, when an embarrassing thing happened on screen to a character and I would suddenly feel flushed and red as though I myself was embarrassed. Doctors have a sense of hya. Hya, feeling embarrassed when another person is embarrassed is in a way a practice of empathy. We hear what our patients say and feel what they are going through so that we can help them. With the modernization of 
pediatrician of medicine, we are now realizing the importance of training doctors in empathy. As I think about the car sales rep, my patients and myself, as I think about the current opioid and benzodiazepine epidemics, as I think about refugee and minority healthcare, that drop of a plastic pill bottle rings in my head. I pray that whether I see people in clinic on the street or even in a car dealership, that I try to see them as a whole person. When I look into a stranger's eyes, I pray for a larger heart so that I can hold their story, their daily struggles, and the deep yearnings they hide in their pockets. At the end of the day, we went home wondering how he was treated by his colleagues at the end of the day, what cheers or jeers were said, his drive home and what he ate for dinner, his next doctor appointment, and appeals eased the sores that we partook in reopening. Well, thank you all so much for reading that and for writing it. Yeah. Um, could you just tell us a bit about what inspired you to write this piece? It was just an interesting situation because we wanted to get that car at a good price and it, we were going to, we were committed. And it was just so interesting in the car dealership that he was like the only person of color, really. There might've been one or two, but definitely the only Asian in the entire car dealership, right? And um, I don't like that kind of place. It's just, you know, it's just a weird system and they got to get rid of that. <laughs> It's like the only place in America where they have like this, these interesting laws where they, they, they sell you things like this in that way. It's just silly, silly, silly. So, but we had to do what we had to do. And um, it was just like, whoa, there's this guy who's kind of interesting. And he had so many details about him that made me think about my family, right? I mean, we were, you know, we were fortunate that we were not refugees, you know, immigrants, but not refugees. So that's something that's different. Um, but I kind of knew still the idea of being in a, a kind of culture that's different, you know, and uh, when we moved here from Chicago, we were wondering, like, are there people of color here? Are there people, you know, from ethnic minorities that live here? And, and fortunately, there are. And so it was good to see that. But um, yeah, I don't know, I just didn't get good vibes from all the other workers there. The kind of like the way they treated him felt kind of bad, like wrong, right? So I almost forgot about that because I was reading this. I'm like, oh yeah, that guy was so greasy. He's just like, like, where's Paul? He should be here. You know, like it was like not a team saying. It's like, you know, so I could be reading too much into it, but I, I think there was some evidence that it was not a great place. But interestingly, like a year or two later, just getting an oil change. He was still there and happy. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that like, you know, whatever he, whatever he's getting and wants, he's getting it. And I think that's, that's good. A job's a job. Like, I think when you mentioned um, like being curious about if there are like other minorities here, like I grew up in Massachusetts in like a very particularly like predominantly white town. And I just remember like whenever I saw someone that was like not white, like especially if they were Asian, I'd be in some ways like I would like mentally latch on to them and be like, oh, I wonder what life they're like. I wonder how they're like experiencing the world. Um, simply because I think I just like didn't see that many. And so those kinds of questions were also kind of running through my head as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's you already have a common culture. And it's interesting, right? Because Asia is not like a monolith. It's not like everyone but it's just but yeah when you're when you're in America and it's there's not that many you know persons of color you, you know you kind of do a gorilla sense of Asian 
which is, you know, kind of a vague sense of like some cultural things, but it's kind of, it's still a really, you kind of click with people a little faster when you eat the same food, similar foods and, and to have similar customs at home, et cetera. And, uh, you know, as an attending, and if you choose to go into academic medicine or really any kind of, you know, other career in that realm, you know, you're going to start to see leaders who are there. And it is, it is rare to see people who look like you. So a lot of meetings, you know, and it's interesting because it's Zoom now, right? You just see all these faces and like, whoa, what if everyone was like white, you know? And it sometimes is. It sometimes is. Um, and, and uh, yeah, it's, I, you know, you can imagine that for some people, like him at his work, you know, that's what I, I think of. Um, and then when the reverse, right, happens, you click on, you kind of latch on and, and form close quick bonds with those. Um, my, I remember when I was a fresh, not a freshman, <laughs> freshman, uh, when I was a first year resident, uh, I had a patient, one of my first patients who was Filipino, an old 70 year old guy. And uh, he sat on the, the, the table, right, on the, in the clinic room. And he just first looked at me and then just said, I'm so proud of you. And I realized he, he's like, he knew I'm Filipino. And he's just like, wow, I've never, you know, I've never seen a Filipino doctor in America. And uh, you know, there's so many instances that you'll see of that. I'm sure med school, you guys probably felt that in some context, but it was just like, you know, when you see someone in an, in a, in an unexpected position in America, it, could, it can be a great thing actually. In your piece too, when you're talking about Huya, um, I kind of thought about how you kind of described your father as like, his haggling as like loud and like heavy handed and like the brandishing that frankness. And then like when you start talking about the data and statistics about like social anxiety and distress among like Asian Americans specifically, as opposed to European Americans, I was just wondering like, do you think your identity as an Asian American has influenced your sense of Haya in maybe ways that it hasn't with your father? And like, how has that kind of your sense of impacted how um like impacted your relationship with your patients yeah that's so complex you know I think it depends on so many factors I think what I want to say now where I'm kind of selling on is like um you kind of have to have an understanding of like the hierarchy because yeah if you're haggling you kind of feel like you're on the same level you know and so you wouldn't necessarily have embarrassment for things you do. But then if it's like a doctor, you know, you, you, and you're not a doctor, you, you know, you kind of put them at a level like, oh, I'm going to do what they say, you know, <laughs> that's kind of like, you're just automatically, you know, defer to them. And I kind of have that still in life. You know, I do respect those who have experience who are higher in a position because they, you know, they must be trustworthy. They earn their, they earn, they have more experience. So, kind of, um, you know, it's uh, it, so in that sense, right? If if you have that, sometimes you can feel more embarrassed about who you are, what you do, and it's so it's such a interesting. It's just an interface when you're Asian American, you know, because then you have the sense of like, 
independence and I'm going to do what I want, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, I wouldn't say me first, but it's just like, eh, well, if they feel that way, that they feel that way, I'm going to do what I want. So it's always a weird interplay between that. Some cultures teach like group harmony, like to know about the wellness of the group and to be sensitive to like where people are. And these are broad statements, you know, and everything, but like sometimes that American part of me gets confused because it, it wants to like, you know what, you have to care about your well-being. You got to get what you want and need, take care of yourself. And then part of me is also like, man, that group, this group is not doing so well. I wonder what they're going through. How can I help them? Where are they? Let's not cause more embarrassment for them or put pressure on them because we know that they're going through something hard, you know? So, well, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things flowing around in the head for Asian Americans as they interact. I mean, I've definitely had similar conversations in my mind when it comes to culture and we talk about individualism or even the concept of the self. I, I'm an immigrant from Cameroon, um, and so the culture mm-hmm. is a lot, you know, it's a lot more family-oriented, community-centered. And so I have some thoughts about when we define even the individual, and not necessarily in America, you think of the one person. But for me, it's more my, my unit and myself, my family is part of that mm-hmm. bracket. So I sometimes think about how we define, we can use these terms, but it can apply more broadly in a different sense. But I just found that a really cool connection point, and just the immigrant experience, something that I really relate to. And I also was thinking as I was reading your piece about one thing for me that's very constant, like when I find other Christians, I go to a church, no matter where I am, whether I'm in Cameroon or a different country, even in the U.S., I have the sense of home and the sense of connection. And so I actually wanted to ask you, because one of my favorite parts of this entire piece um, was the line that said, I pray that whether I see people in clinic, on the street, or even in a car dealership, but I try to see them as a whole person. When I look into a stranger's eyes, I pray for a larger heart that I can hold their story, their daily struggles, and the deep yearnings they may hide in their pockets. And so I was wondering, um, how, how does your faith influence your self-reflection? And also, how does your faith influence your medical practice? You know, everyone has different styles of medicine. And for me, part that rings true in my head is to, to think of people as like holistically. I think we are pretty good in medicine to think about their physical health and even now more of their mental health, right? That's like a thing now, less of stigma and then more understanding of emotional health. And then for me, I also think about people and their you know, spiritual health. And I think it's all connected. Some cultures, some time periods, you know, we neglect or forget or emphasize too much on one or the other kind of health. You know, and I think if you neglect one, the other ones are affected, really. You know, I think it's all connected. And as a family doctor, you kind of see that in individuals and as families, right? That's why we're called family doctors. You know, you can see that like the mental health of a parent does affect the mental health of a child, right? I would even say even the health of doctors can affect patients because if I'm not well, I'm, maybe I won't go to work. Maybe I'll be burned out. <laughs> I'll be burned out and then it'll affect patients. And so we're all connected in that sense. And the more connections we make, I think the more empathy will occur and the more interventions will kind of change, right? When you vote, when you like have a say for a certain law or something, it's based on a very deep connection to other people. And if you don't have 
that connection with certain groups of people, you're not going to advocate for them. Why would you? You don't know them. They're not you or they're not us. You know, they're them. Th those all things are all connected in my mind, right? And then for Christianity or faith, right? We're, we're all made in the image of God. We're all children of God. We're all siblings. And that's so hard to believe in this world, right? <laughs> to believe like, that's my brother. And, you know, that's my sister over there. That's my family member over there. How can you harmonize well if you don't actually think they're family or someone connected to you? And so I, I think realizing we all got stuff going on, we all got issues, and that person is just as real and trying as hard as, as me and vice versa. So, you know, you, you got to like figure out connections. That's why art is really important. You know, you talk about patients with vaccines, right, who are anti-vax or patients who have other kind of strong opinions. Like, this is the thing that I know. Facts don't change people <laughs> and they don't change hearts. They really don't. Like, they even have studies. You give parents more facts about vaccines, they're going to be more anti-vax. <laughs> facts don't change hearts. And I think stories do. And so people who don't believe the pandemic's real or who think we're blowing it up or don't even believe hospitals are full. That's why workers at Worcester, I felt was needed because you need to not know the numbers. That doesn't change anyone. Look at what these faces look like. Listen to their stories, read their stories. This is real. Like it's not a conspiracy or people making it up or being overblown. It's really affecting people. And so, and that's like Christianity too. It's not about convincing people in their mind. It's really about sharing something real right in front of them. That's love. That's going to change a heart. Not, not kind of spitting out these things in the mind and arguing, right? It's about being real to them and showing them love, right? Like that's practical and changing things. Like that's, that's, that's how things change, right? That's how discipleship for, from, from Christianity kind of works is uh, serving others, washing their feet, right? <laughs> Being there with them and, and giving them meals, right? Like real stuff rather than um, kind of like the poor picture that America paints of Christianity it's, at times, especially in the media. So that's kind of like where I come from. And uh, I'm thankful that, you know, you, you guys come in a chance to kind of share that. The thread that I'm getting is getting at the common humanity. When you say facts don't change people, stories do. You talk about um, community, you talk about service, even your faith and your, your journey and focusing on love. I think it's really getting at this concept you were speaking of earlier with you know, if you look at others as them, and I'm me or I'm us, then there's this clear separation. But if you try to get towards the common humanity, whereas we're all brothers and sisters, we're all united. And that's also one thing that I think about when we talk about diversifying spaces and increasing representation. I think it often gets um, misconstrued or misunderstood as if we're trying to get others or trying to get them to come into these spaces, when actually what it's trying to do is break down walls of separation. So it's not us versus them, it's all of us together. And it actually benefits everyone, not just the majority of those who are currently there, but also those who are coming in. So I really love that thread of getting at the common humanity. And that is really what was highest together and break down those bonds of separation. And really, we can all feel at home in all places when we all are united as one, you know, one family, one group, one human, you know, nation. 
your thoughts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the last thing I would say is, you know, we are, we're doctors, right? We have kind of have lofty aspirations. We do want to change the world, you know, and I love that. Don't, we don't forget that. And I think it's just, you know, loving people who are near you well. Do your best to care about the person next to you. You know, maybe you can't do a hundred or a thousand people, but the four people that are near you, love them well. And I think that's how it works. You know, I have about like 1,500 patients in my panel. It sounds like a lot, but when you realize how much need there is in the world and how much need there is in Worcester and how many doctors that are in shortage, right? How many patients are looking at doctors? It's almost overwhelming. Sometimes in a patient visit, like in clinic especially, we don't really get anything medically done. Sometimes they just want someone to understand them and hear them and know and to be with them. And to me, that's like, that's literally what art is like. Just kind of being with people and feeling what they feel. I didn't change any medicines. We didn't have any like specific medical management that kind of intervened with anything in particular. But, you know, when they were just sharing, you know, that, they're, they're sad or depressed and uh, they don't want to change their meds, but they wanted to share their stressful like week and how their family member died. You know, we just kind of just listened and talked. That's all we did. And I think that's what they wanted. And I'm, I'm thankful that that's something that I could give. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this was an amazing talk. And I think it really kind of highlighted just how tied together art, but also medicine and healing are with each other. So thank you so much again for your time. Yeah, it was, it was really an honor. And thank you guys. I mean, you guys are literally doing what I, you know, we were doing, right? Listening to others and entering their space and learning from them. I mean, you can, you're going to gain so much from the diversity of people. The things you gain from this probably will be with you for your whole career. So keep yeah. at it. Thank you. <laughs> what I'm leaving with is do what you can where you are. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Murmurs, Stories from Our Journey in Medicine. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, reach out to us via email at murmursumassmed at gmail.com. This season was produced and edited by Divya Bhatia, Chue Yang, Jesse Sardell, and Lyle Gongmani, with advice from Hugh Silk. Special thanks to Jake Paulson for our original theme music and Hilary Mullen for our logo arts. To learn more about medical humanities at UMass Chan, visit the Humanities Lab page on the UMass Med Library website at libraryguides.umassmed.edu slash humanities underscore lab. We'll see you soon in the next episode. Until then, keep reflecting and storytelling.